A new forecast paints a rather rosy picture for the next state budget. Eric Holcomb promises a legislative agenda that won't be rushed. That, plus teacher bonus pay, a new state GOP chair, and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending December 16th, 2016. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, state fiscal analysts delivered a new revenue forecast for Indiana's next two-year state budget. For weeks, legislators preached caution when discussing the budget they'll write in the upcoming session. Yet, a new revenue forecast predicts they will have about $1 billion new dollars. And that's even after the forecast says the state will collect about $300 million less this fiscal year than originally expected. Still, House Ways and Means Chair Tim Brown continues to preach caution. There's optimism on the forecast, but is there optimism in the overall economy? Because, again, there's so many things on the horizon that could uh, derail uh, this forecast. And Senate Appropriations Chair Luke Kenley says, historically speaking, a new recession could be around the corner. I think that makes us be uh, somewhat cautious just because of not the items contained in the forecast, but the fact that it's just been so long since we've had any kind of an adjustment. Are Republican budget writers being too tight-fisted? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Daniel Altman, Republican Ann Hathaway, John Schwanis, the host of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting Statehouse reporter Brandon Smith. Daniel Altman, are Tim Brown and Luke Kenley right to preach continued caution? Well, I think budgets reflect our priorities. And I think if you talk to the people of Indiana, what they're going to tell you is our priorities are fixing our infrastructure, funding education, fighting the opioid crisis, and making pre-K available to any family that wants it. I think if you take a look at the numbers, it shows that we have that available to us. And so I think that's what we should be expecting out of our lawmakers in the session. I think what's interesting there is what they're not saying, which is basically they're worried about what the economy is going to look like from a national perspective, and they really don't know what's going to happen under President Trump and what's going to happen to us from a fiscal perspective. Uh, a rosier picture than they were expecting and yet still caution. Uh, but Daniel just talked about the long wish list. There's always a long wish list in a budget year, but the price tag for that wish list is pretty hefty this year. Are we going to see them give a little more than usual? I think that fiscal responsibility is the name of the game right now. If, if, if you have confidence in President Trump to deliver the economy that he's promising, why not go that extra step, go a little bit further than we have in years past? We have a new president, we have new Congress, we have new governors across this country. We're going to take one day at a time as this rolls out. We don't even know who the whole cabinet is today, yet today to know whether or not uh, what, the, what, what the new government's going to look like. Fiscal responsibility is going to be what we need to be responsible for. John Katzenberger, you're president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. So what do you think of that revenue forecast? Well, it was rosier than I anticipated. I didn't think that they'd see such robust uh, economic growth in fiscal year 18 and 19. Um, and the forecast was a billion new dollars in the uh, system as anticipated between now and the end of the next uh, fiscal biennium. So it was rosier than I thought. Uh, but I do think that the uncertainty about, and this was echoed by the people who gave us the economic forecast before the revenue forecast, there are so many things that are uncertain about what's going to happen with the, the federal government. 
Um, we don't know what a Trump administration will do. Um, some of it could be very favorable. If they start a, a major infrastructure program at the federal level, then that augments what Indiana wants to do and probably helps. It could also be very destructive. If they got the Affordable Care Act and it affects the Medicaid, which is the third largest part of our budget in Indiana, that could send it skyrocketing and really affect uh, the state's budget. So you, you have the optimism tempered major by uh, you know, the caution going forward. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about the idea of tax cuts, or tax increases, rather, uh, related to road funding in the next session. But is a positive uh, revenue forecast, is a billion new dollars projected going to make it harder to sell that to the public? Perhaps, but it, it, it's not a replacement for the tax uh, revenue or of user fees or whatever, whatever euphemism you want to use, <laughs> especially when you talk about long-term road construction and, and, and bridge construction and rehabilitation. Even if you have an infusion, perhaps only one-time infusion of cash, that's not the kind of generational solution that Brian Bosma, the House Speaker, and others want. And to really fix the problem, never mind fix the roads, but fix the funding problem, you have to have some sort of new revenue, whether it's an indexing of the current gasoline tax, whether it's tolling on, on certain interstates, whether it's a reallocation or rededication of, of the uh, sales tax monies, that are attached to gasoline, electric car user fees, you know, any and all of the above, I think, are, are on the table. But it's, uh, you know, the whole notion of a, an optimistic forecast is a mixed blessing. If you're Tim Brown or if you are Luke Kinley and you're crafting these budgets, on the one hand, you're thinking, great, pressure's off. I've got a little bit more flexibility. But at the same time, when there's optimism, that means everybody who's there with your hand, their hands out is going to show up right. in your office. And in fact, Luke Kenley said, what, I think the other day at a conference that 150 people, I don't know if he's notching his desk or what, had already shown up in his office basically with the, the tin cup out. It's easier to uh, keep expectations down and say no when you're not uh, sitting on a healthy uh, revenue forecast. So it is a double-edged sword for these guys. Uh, Daniel, Luke Kenley talked about the fact that, that we haven't seen a recession in a while. You heard John Kettensberger just talk about the, all that uncertainty with the new stuff at the federal level. Will voters be forgiving if Indiana budget writers are a little cautious? Well, I think the voters are going to expect that uh, budget writers do what they sent them to Indianapolis to do. And I think that in a lot of the conversation that we just went through in this election, the election there was a lot of agreement about the need for infrastructure and uh, investment. And there was a lot of agreement about expanding pre-K. Now, pre-K is one of those things that can actually be done without any additional new spending if you're just a little bit wiser as far as the way that you handle reversions. But so a lot of these things can be handled that way. Um, but I think voters send people here to do a job, and they expect them to um, make sure that we're investing in the state the way that it needs to be invested in. Um, I think the thing that's really interesting, and I mean, John just used about five different euphemisms, is we're in a situation now where we, you have Republicans that are opening, openly saying, let's raise taxes. And so I think that's obviously not something that, uh, a message that you hear from that side of the aisle very often. So it's going to be interesting to see how that's sold within those caucuses. Well, that tells you we're on the other side of an election as opposed to uh, <laughs> being just an election year coming up in November. The first year of a, new, of a new term. If you're going to do it, this is the time to do it, right? Time now for viewer feedback. Each week, we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our ice miller email and text alerts. This week's question, are lawmakers being too cautious as they plan the next state budget? A, yes, it's time to spend money on the state's biggest needs, or B, no, they're just being prudent. Last week's question, should police be allowed to take a DNA sample after every felony arrest? 72% say yes, if I'm innocent, I have nothing to hide. 28% say no, it's an invasion of privacy. 
If you would like to take part in the poll, go to WFYI.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. Governor-elect Eric Holcomb this week laid out the basic framework of his legislative agenda, offering few specifics. Holcomb's speech to the annual Bingham Greenbaum Doll Legislative Conference sounded much like his campaign stump speech. Stated priorities include a data-driven infrastructure plan, expanding pre-K, and addressing the drug epidemic. On infrastructure, he got a little more specific than in the past. He wants a plan that goes out 20 years, and he wants to invest in what he calls transformational projects. Holcomb says he's not worried about waiting until early January to fully flesh out the details of his agenda. Having talked to governors all around the country, successful as they are, uh, they, they uh, emphasize the point that get it right. Don't, don't uh, rush anything if you don't have to, and, and we're going to get this right as we start this new administration. Anne Hathaway, is Holcomb taking the right approach here? He says he won't release his uh, legislative agenda until January 5th, which is when the legislature, after they convene, um, is, is he taking the right approach, or should Hoosiers be anxious about his la lack of specifics? He's not only taking the right approach, he's taking the Eric Holcomb approach. He said on the campaign trail he wasn't going to be Mitch Daniels, he wasn't going to be Mike Pence, he was going to be Eric Holcomb. Eric is the type of guy who uh, looks for opinions, voices, builds coalitions, and tries to put together a strong, recommended plan, and really thoughtful about real solutions. And he's going to do it. He's going to present it on January fifth. That's prior to his inaugural. He did a hundred-day sprint campaign. I think that the ability to to present the proposal, or the the, the um, legislative agenda, is going to on January fifth. It's it's the right timing, and it's his way. Uh, and just brought up the idea of that hundred day sprint, and it's been suggested even on this show before that some of the pace of his transition, his agenda, is is because perhaps he didn't think he was going to win. But is are we still seeing the effects of the fact that he was not the gubernatorial candidate in even June? Well, I think what you're saying is he didn't bother with any specifics during the campaign, so why should he feel like he has to bother with them now? Um, and I, whether there was the sentiment that he wasn't going to win or not was out there, and he just happened to come along on the Trump coattails, I guess, is a different conversation. I think what you have to worry about right now is you have Republican supermajorities in both the House and in the Senate, and so that's a lot of power that's right there. And so without a strong gubernatorial ag agenda that's out there in public, you have to worry about those supermajorities filling the void and starting to craft their own agenda and getting momentum behind that before they actually get there for the session. I think you saw this a lot with uh, during Governor Pence's term as well, where he would take his time on putting out his agenda, and so you see some of the things that percolate up from the right that kind of take on a life of their own, and all of a sudden you've lost control of the message for your legislative session. So I think it's really dangerous for him to wait this long before putting out details. John Schwannis, he, he mentioned the Republican supermajorities in both the House and Senate. These are leaders who say they've talked with Eric Holcomb plenty both before the election and after it. To a certain extent, does it almost not matter what's in Eric Holcomb's legislative agenda? I hadn't thought of it that way. I, I guess to a certain extent that, that may be the case. Keep in mind, there isn't really an onus on him to have the 101-point plan, you know, today or yesterday, because, again, you're not having a party shift in terms of control of the governor's office and the administration. So to a certain extent, there's a little bit of breathing room there. You've got people who, in many cases, are there familiar with more or less the, uh, the agenda, or at least his predecessor's agenda. Uh, so you're not going to have to uh, have a look, be looking at a lot of empty desks and a lot of empty offices if not everything is buttoned down uh, by the time uh, the, the inauguration takes place. The other thing is if you look at uh, his predecessors where you have 
Mike Pence and Mitch Daniels, who came in with very ambitious and very specific proposals their first legislative session, they actually sort of were uh, butting heads with members of the General Assembly who I think in some cases found it off-putting that the, the rookie is coming here demanding you know, a 10% um, cut in, in taxes, uh, which was the case, for instance, with Mike Pence or uh, Mitch Daniels, who didn't necessarily have there were times when it, it, people were saying, "Boy, a tax yeah, this is not the approach. The, this is not going to make him a successful governor." We forget yeah. about how rough that first session was. So, some would argue that maybe this is actually, uh, given all the uh, the upheaval that we just talked about with the first question and so much unanswered uh, in Washington and elsewhere, this may be the right approach. To that end, John Ketzenberger, when we hear Eric Holcomb's agenda on January fifth, are you expecting it to be relatively? without lacking much surprise? Oh, I think it'll be very familiar. Um, I do expect more specificity, and I do think it's important to say here that typically we don't hear from a governor, uh, especially a, a newly elected governor, uh, about his, his or his legislative agenda until the State of the State address, which is typically much later in January. So uh, he's probably a little further ahead of this than most governors are. Uh, but I do agree with the analysis that um, he didn't have as a specific a plan as, as uh, say, John Gregg had either. So I think we're going to see um, he's already dropping, you know, he wants 10, 20 years on the roads instead of 10. I think he's going to probably drop a few more things along the way, and I think you'll see a fairly specific plan <laughs> from Governor Holcomb uh, by the time the legislature kicks into gear. Teachers in some of Indiana's richest school districts will get more than $1,000 in bonuses, while their more urban counterparts get little to nothing, as the state this week announced its Teacher Performance Grant Awards. The teacher bonus funding formula relies heavily on students passing the I-STEP. That means a top teacher in, say, Carmel will get a $2,400 bonus this year, while a top Indianapolis public schools teacher will get only $124. That's got teachers and school administrators crying foul, and even incoming state superintendent, Republican Jennifer McCormick, says she's concerned about the inequalities. Senator Luke Kenley acknowledges that the formula isn't perfect. I think the Teacher Performance Award is going to be one of the keys for um, uh, trying to attract people to the teacher profession, and I think we need to refine that. We've gone for literally 100 years with every teacher with the same amount of seniority making the same amount of money, and we're trying to recognize teacher performance. And this is going to take a little time, Brandon, for this thing to evolve out. John Katzenberger, lawmakers could have addressed this teacher bonus formula last session. Did they fall down on the job here? Uh, it would have been nice if they had addressed it last session for the obvious reason, the example that you, that you pose. This is the, uh, the problem with hanging so much emphasis on a high-stakes test like the I-STEP uh, and then having a formula that's fairly rigid. I think the legislature understands that it needs to come back and take a look at this. We've already seen the first steps with the I-STEP being um, uh, reworked. I hope they are able to do that because we need to know what students know, but we don't want to put everything uh, on teachers for the performance of their students. We don't expect it of our football coaches. Well, I guess we sort of do in college. <laughs> uh, but they know the deal going in. And I, I think that um, you know there are many ways to figure out whether you've got a good teacher uh, and how to reward that person. And I think they're going to have to figure that out. It's unfortunate it's, it's going, not going to happen this year, but I hope it happens in the session ahead. To that point, when we're trying to reward teachers, we've, we have this whole um, ongoing drama, if you will, of trying to retain teachers mm -hmm. in Indiana. Does this just continue to hurt that cause? 
It may, and it, it certainly, and I think that's why many lawmakers uh, are saying we need to deal with just salary levels, base salary levels for new teachers and others to, to make sure there is an incentive to get into the profession uh, rather than be you know, $10,000, $20,000 behind, say, other uh, new entrance into the public sector, whether it's fire, police, others, there's, you know, you're not, those are a little more lucrative and more financially rewarding than teaching, certainly uh, with the current structures. But it, it, when you do look at the situation, such as the example you uh, provided, you arguably want some of your best and most talented teachers in those areas where the challenges are the greatest. And, and if you look at the district, an urban district like Indianapolis Public Schools, where you may have kids showing up who, without any kind of proper nutrition or breakfast, maybe they didn't, couldn't sleep the night before because of who knows what, you know, they didn't have the private tutoring session. Then you look at the situation in, in Carmel, or I don't want to pick on any particular uh, suburban district, but you do have, in many cases, the benefits and the active parents and the, you know, bird-dogging them about homework and so forth. So to hold teachers solely responsible for test scores provided by their students does seem a bit uh, of a disincentive to want to go into a district where you can really make an impact. I mentioned Carmel at the top, but it, it was it was the, the most affluent school district right. that generally got the top awards. This feels like another round of the haves and the have-nots, which we hear about in the school conversation all the time. Is mm -hmm. that a problem for the Republican legislature? I think it's a problem for the Republican legislature, but I think it's a problem more for the school districts um, and for the teachers themselves. We need to reward good teachers. We've got to figure out a way. The legislators admit that this isn't quite right. We heard Senator Kenley. This is going to, we're going to keep pushing it, pushing it, pushing it till we find the right formula that works. And unfortunately, it may be more prescriptive than what people want it to be. And what does that mean? We'll figure that, I'll have to figure that out through the process. Uh, fundamentally speaking, Daniel Altman, um, we all, I'm sure, like the idea of, of rewarding our top teachers. Mm -hmm. is, is doing that based on student performance the right way to go? Well, I think what this shows is that our continued reliance and over-reliance on a standardized test score is simply just blown out of proportion. I think John hit the nail on the head when he started with that. I think that you can't reduce every single thing that happens inside of a school and the incredible things that are happening with teachers that don't just teach math and English and language arts, but also music and art and history and science. And you can't reduce that simply to okay, this was your math pass rate, and so here's what your teacher performance awards, your teacher your performance grant is going to be. Uh, it just isn't, it isn't that much of a binary thing. Um, and so I think what we're doing right now is we're using ISTEP for, to, to get results that it was never intended to get. And I think when that happens, you're starting to get results that are f just flat out unfair. It's difficult for me to understand that a teacher in East Chicago where they had to move a school this year because of lead issues and they've done incredible work to keep things going is getting zero. I, while and that's not to slight the other teachers that are getting that are that are getting these grants. They do incredible work too. I'm not saying that, but zero dollars in East Chicago is difficult to stomach. All right, the Indiana Republican Party will have a new chair after Jeff Cardwell this week announced he will step down from his post. Cardwell, put in that job by Governor Mike Pence about a year and a half ago, will step aside next month. While the GOP State Committee will officially choose Cardwell's replacement, that decision essentially belongs to Governor-elect Eric Holcomb. And Holcomb's choice is Kyle Hupfer. Hupfer worked for Governor Mitch Daniels, uh, served as treasurer of Holcomb's campaign, and co-chairs the Governor-elect's transition team. John Schwannis, Cardwell clearly had some success as party chair. Uh, are you surprised to see a changing in the guard here? 
Not necessarily. I think this is fairly predictable. Any time you have uh, a new chief executive, uh, the head of the party, uh, for all practical purposes, whether that's governor or you know a Senate, U.S. Senate, if that's the top um, uh, re Republican, for instance, on, in office at any given time in the state, sort of the titular head of the party, you assume that when that person takes office, that individual has carte blanche to to pick and choose individuals. Uh, who are with whom he or she is particularly comfortable. That's not necessarily uh, an indictment of the predecessor. Certainly, it'd be hard to construe uh, Cardwell's performance as anything but successful, given that every, I think, virtually every office, certainly statewide office, uh, in the, right now is held by a Republican. But I think it's just more a matter of, hey, to the victor go the spoils, and, right. and you want to be with somebody you're comfortable with. John Ketzenberger, I talked about Kyle Huffer, the likely new chair's ties to Mitch Daniels. Um, is this the clearest sign yet that Eric Holcomb is going to try to at least model himself after Mitch Daniels? Well, he has certainly taken in a lot of folks who are from the Daniels administration, and Kyle Hupfer is a prime example of that. Uh, Earl Good is his, sec his uh, uh, chief of staff and, and uh, uh, several others. Uh, but I think that Ann made a good point earlier. He's, he's got a chance to, to carve his own path here, and I think that uh, Eric Holcomb looks to do that. Uh, it probably will resemble a lot of uh, Governor Daniels, uh, but we'll have to wait and see until he gets going. Um, I expect that you'll see, uh, you know, Cardwell had a great run, uh, but the half-life of a state party chairman is relatively short, and I can imagine that he wants to get back and, and to do what he wanted to do in his life, too. Uh, so we'll see Carl, Kyle, I think, um, you know, bring some uh, modernization, probably some new tools, uh, from the social media realm and, and other places and see how they work. Speaking of party chairs, a new name has emerged as National Democrats search for a new DNC chair, and it's a familiar one to many Hoosiers. South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, considered one of the Indiana Democrats' rising stars, is being urged by some to make a bid to lead the Democratic National Committee. Buttigieg, a Rhodes Scholar, Harvard grad, and Naval Reserve officer who's openly gay, says he's focused on his job as mayor, but has been discussing the future of the party with local and state leaders. Minnesota Congressman Keith Ellison, Labor Secretary Tom Perez are among those actively pursuing the job. Daniel Altman, Indiana's been in the spotlight when it comes to national politics this year. Is Buttigieg the right choice to, to lead the DNC? Well, I think there's two things that you have to think of. Uh, first, anytime you have the type of resume that you just read off, it's certainly the sort of thing that should come to the top of the stack. Um, Pete's had an incredible career. He's done incredible work. He's brilliant. Um, and so I think that's anytime someone like that is uh, a possibility, then that's something you need to take a very long, hard look at. The second thing, and I think almost more important, though, is that none of this conversation would be happening if it wasn't for the great work that Pete's doing for the city of South Bend. Um, I mean, if you go up 31 and you take a look at what's happening there, they've got incredible development uh, downtown and throughout the city. Unemployment's falling. They've, they're getting private investment throughout the entire town. And so when you look at the work that he's doing for the people of uh, South Bend, I think it deserves a long, hard look. And Hathaway, given how much Indiana has been in the national spotlight this year, would you be surprised to see national Democrats turn their eyes to the Hoosier state? Absolutely not. We see Pete Buttigieg as a rising star, um, and Indiana has a wealth of rising stars on both sides of the aisle, so not surprised at all. John Ketzenberger, do you think uh, that it makes sense to, to draw from the heartland, as it were, when national Democrats are reorganizing? I think that they saw the same election results the rest of us saw. And I think that they do see in Pete Buttigieg somebody who is very effective, somebody who has a dynamite resume, and somebody who is in his third term and is probably thinking about what else he's going to do with his career. And in this case, it's not just what's on the resume, it's what's not on there. I don't think the party would benefit from somebody of the 
establishment in terms of, by that I mean Washington, D.C. So you get somebody who's a chief executive dealing with local problems in a mayoral uh, position in the heartland of America, that's, that's valuable. Finally, the State Board of Education met this week, and it was State Superintendent Glenn, Glenda Ritz's last meeting in that job. Anne Hathaway, with Ritz's tenure, uh, how will her, her tenure be remembered by Hoosiers? Um, I think um, as drama, a lot of drama. And I think voters voted, uh, voted to replace her because they were tired of the drama. They wanted to focus on teacher, uh, student, students and teachers in the future. Um, we were ready for a change. Daniel Altman, I would be curious to hear your uh, evaluation of the tenure of Glenda Ritz. Well, I think there's a couple different aspects of it. First uh, way you have to look at her tenure is the way that she is received when she goes into the classroom. Uh, she travels throughout the state multiple times a week and goes into classroom and works with teachers to actually see what is working and what isn't. And I think that's something that's just incredibly well received. She's also put in effect a grassroots program that's done the same thing and shared best practices throughout the state. So from an education perspective, I think she's going to be sorely missed. Last thoughts? She may be the last time in Indiana history that we have somebody who's in that position of a different party affiliation than the governor, because in all likelihood, we might see a change of that position, uh, as has been discussed for decades now, to an appointed uh, status as opposed to an elected position. That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Daniel Altman, Republican Ann Hathaway, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity or Bright House Networks. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.